Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Just a quick note before we get started. This episode contains strong language and graphic descriptions. In three, two, one. It's a popular belief that gangs are power-hungry groups of thugs who set out to create chaos and violence in a neighborhood. But for Tierra Caldwell, they served another purpose. Caldwell didn't live the traditional family life, but his family did provide a much-needed sense of belonging. It provided security in a tough world. Tierra's family was a gang. Joining the gang, it starts with, you know, just hanging out, feeling out the person, who you are. And then it's it's really more or less, um, it's kind of like trauma bonding. Like you relate to somebody else through their struggle and your struggle. Like we're both poor. We're both from this neighborhood. We both don't have fathers. We both, you know, have mothers who may or may not have been on drugs and we come from broken families, and it's almost as if our trauma has, in some ways, bonded us together at this, at this point. And so the trauma kind of, in a strange way, connects you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's something about broken people coming together. Right, right. And so when we were, obviously, when we're all broken pieces, but in this gang or this family— When we all come together, we feel complete. Facing a hostile world alone, Thierre grew up angry and lashed out at everyone and everything. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is season three of Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. It was the 1980s, and Tierra's mom moved into a small apartment in North Minneapolis. Living in a single-parent home can be tough for a kid. Tierra's mom had a full-time job and found it hard raising a son on her own. Though his mom lived directly across the street from his dad, Tierra's father never wanted to see him. It wasn't until Thierre was nine years old when he and his dad were in the same room for the first time since he was born. He was very, like, happy. He felt like he was doing, like, a fatherly thing. But I remember it because he didn't know my birthday. He didn't know anything really about me. I was, like, very excited, obviously, because I'm like, wow, this is, this is my dad. Like, okay. And, um, you know, he was saying my name wrong and, you know, he just, he didn't know much about me and he wasn't very interested to really learn anything about me. It was kind of like, yeah, here's these shoes. Be happy that I went in my pocket and got these shoes for you. Tierra learned a lot from that experience. He toughened up and suppressed all of his feelings of rejection and abandonment. Nobody was going to hurt him again. 
He learned from his mom's abusive partners that violence was a normal part of life. Then when a friend of the family came to stay at Tierra's place, he learned even more. My mother had a friend come live with us at the new house. And she had a son and me and him were best friends. But she smoked and drank and smoked cigarettes and weed and alcohol. And that was kind of my introduction into um, drug use. Okay, how old were you about this time? Um, 12. Yeah. 12, 11. Well, how did drugs make you feel? Um, it was just an escape. It was an outlet. It helped ease the chip on my shoulder because I used the chip on my shoulder of not having a father. That void I filled with hate and just really just a rebellious spirit. Like I just, I rebelled against everything. My mother, I started getting into fights at school. And then I kind of, that's what kind of led me into um, gangs and different things like that. Tierra drifted easily into the local gang. He was a 14-year-old kid who felt good to be a part of something, even if it led to crime and violence. But things got complicated for Tierra. His mom bought a new home in the middle of Tierra's rival gang territory. The house that she brought was dead smack in my opposition's neighborhood. If I had to go to the corner store, it was in my enemy's neighborhood. Mm. My mom obviously didn't know that when she bought the house, but I did. And so she never really understood the struggles I had growing up in that neighborhood, which I hated. That's really why guns were essential because over there in that neighborhood, I had to, like, I had to have protection over Gosh. Because it's just, it's a rough neighborhood as is, but even if I wasn't in a gang, it's still a rough neighborhood, but I was in opposition in that neighborhood. And just to go to the store, like I had to have it with me. By his late teens, Tierra's drug use was out of control. He would rob people, jack cars, and sell and steal drugs while he was high. What did your drug and alcohol use look like? Um, it was marijuana and um, alcohol. Again, I'll say it again. When I do something, I do it to the T. Like, so we used to rob people coming out of the liquor store. We used to rob dope boys, which, you know, guys who were selling drugs in our neighborhood. <sighs> yeah, my, my drug use was, it increased a lot. Like it went from, I would say, an average day for us, it'd be a, a pack of Newport 100s, a 24 case of Old English malt liquor, and at least about a half to an ounce of weed a day. That was a normal, that was like normal daily consumption. And at some point in that day, we would go out and we would rob or we would fight amongst each other even sometimes. Like, there would be some sort of criminal activity. It's uh, just day-long debauchery and violence. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a lot of old English, by the way. 
I, <laughs> I tried that once and it didn't work out so well for me. I, <laughs> I ended up passed out by a, by a river uh, when I was 16 and I woke up and I'm like, I'm never drinking this thing again. <laughs> I got introduced to ecstasy in like 2000, the year 2000, 2001. And in my mind, I thought that it was just like the best thing because you couldn't smell it. Mm. Nobody really knew that, you know, you were off of it unless you told them and the high lasted longer. And it it kind of, in my mind at the time, it kind of got me with the serotonin flowing. Like it made me say a lot of things I was holding back. By 1995, people in North Minneapolis lived in constant fear. Gang wars plagued the streets and gunshots rang out most nights. Tier, do you remember how old you were when you first picked up a gun? Probably 13, 14. Do you remember how it made you feel? I did. We used to go out and just rob people for no reason. And um, I came across a gun one night and I just, I was the one who was holding it. And I pulled it on somebody because we had just been like just going to our um, opposition's neighborhood and just doing robberies or what have you. This particular night, I had the gun and I actually pulled it and I saw that, when I saw that fear, it kind of made me feel, I don't know, like at the time I felt like invincible, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, because it gave you a certain power that you didn't have when you were a boy. Yeah, yeah. It, it gave you that rush and it, it brought the power to you feeling powerless. Which you had felt for so long growing up. Oh, absolutely. As the gang warfare continued on the streets, most gang members thought they'd be dead by the age of 18. Life was cheap. You live fast and die young. None of my friends made it past 18. And if you made it to 21, like you were like, a god. It just didn't happen. I got shot in the head when I was 17. Shootings, violence, death, it becomes so normal because you can't be in a gang and be afraid to get shot. To escape this world, he would often visit a girl he'd been in a casual, albeit stormy, relationship for years. When they were together, Thierry felt like he was in control. He dictated the terms. He'd leave when he wanted. And she couldn't tell him what to do. That was until she got pregnant. Then it suddenly hit him. He was going to be a dad. And Thierry started to dream big about his future with a child. But he didn't hang on to that dream for long. I was knee-deep in my addiction, obviously, and um, there was a friend, I can't even really call him a friend, he was a, he was an associate of a friend of mine, and we were at my house, and this gentleman was actually, um, he just was getting very belligerent with a few of my family members at my house. I knew him from the neighborhood, but I didn't know him. Like, he wasn't a friend, but he was a using friend. 
he was just somebody who would come over if if I had girls or if I had liquor and weed and ecstasy, he would come over. Yeah. This particular day, he came over and he was drunk and he was getting very um, belligerent with a few of my cousins and house guests. And I went to the liquor store and I came back and he was fighting one of my younger cousins. And then he took a brick and cracked my cousin in the face with the brick. Jesus. Yeah. So my cousin... um. He started, he started bleeding profusely. Like it's almost like he had, it looked like he had got shot because the blood just came rushing out of his, his, his chin. And then the guy ran. And so we followed him to his house. Once I got to his house, somebody that was with me, you know, fought him. And um, while he was fighting, he backed up and went in his pockets like he was about to pull something out and then I saw that's when I pulled out and uh, fired upon him. In Tierra's mind, he was just defending himself. But the courts took into account that he was part of a gang and he was sentenced to 73 months in prison. Everything was going wrong in his life. And just as he was coming to terms with being a father of a young boy, he realized he was becoming the very thing he hated. But now you're looking at going to prison. Are you thinking of your son at that time? Yeah, so my drug use increased. And then I felt like I just kept saying to myself, I'm going to end up like my dad. Like, I'm, my son's not going to know who I am. Like, I'm not going to be there for my son. And so, yeah. And I always made like a personal pact to myself. Like I'd never be like my dad was to me, ever. And now here you are. And now here I am. Tierra was sent to a Minnesota prison in 2011. He was scared and his addiction was out of control. But even in despair and isolation, Tierra had a glimmer of hope. And that's coming up after the break. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a Back From Broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters... If you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, all you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. During some dark days in prison where it seemed impossible to carry on, Tierra met a friend, a father figure who would change his life. But first, Tierra had to confront his own demons. I just kind of got to a dark place, man. Like, I just, after all the powerlessness and all the hopelessness, and I got sent to the hole for like six months for an incident uh, with another inmate for fighting. And then I just, um, 
you know, I just had a, I had a breakdown in the hole and I was sitting there by myself. I swear the devil was sitting in that actual cell with me. And he just said, he was just leaned up against the wall and he said, see, I told you, I knew you would always be here. You can't even, you can't even, not only can you not make it in society, you're in prison and you can't even make it in prison. You're in the hole. He just told me I was nothing and and that I belonged here and that this would be the rest of my life. This would be my story. I was nothing. I was a has-been father. I was an addict. I was a junkie. I was a criminal. I was a thug. I was every, I was just the scum of the earth. And that's why your father never bothered to know you. Wow. I mean... I just, I can't imagine you're alone and your only conversation is with the devil and he's telling you how worthless you are. How did you get yourself out of that? Um, it kind of, it kind of came down to um, a situation where I just kind of told myself, this is either going to make me or break me. And um, once I got out of that rat infested sewage infested um, cage. I just started dedicating myself to um, self-development and I started writing. And then I um, I began to study my history. I began to study black history and then I actually got involved in uh, treatment as well. And that actually, treatment was probably one of the most important catalysts that kind of helped my growth. And I just began to seek out things to better myself. So for as much evil and destruction as I sought out, I just kind of flipped it in a way, asked God to remove anything out of my life that did not coincide with the path that he wanted me to take. When Tierra was released from solitary confinement, he immediately got help. He started cognitive therapy. The cognitive therapy was so helpful. God, I mean, it was it was so deep because for the first time, it was brought to my attention that my way of thinking was not the correct way of thinking. Because I always thought like every thought that came to my mind was the right thought. The minute that my um, my counselor actually did my assessment, she said, okay, yes, you, you need to work on your pride. You need to work on your ego. And I'm like, I don't got no pride. I don't got no ego. <laughs> no, being boastful and egotistical and prideful in my response. Yeah. Um, not really having that deep understanding of what it actually meant. And I never stepped outside of myself to look at myself because I never thought, number one, anything was wrong with me, but I knew the deeper I delved into myself, it would hurt. Oh yeah. You know, it's it's funny how much I can relate to that, that ego and, and dom, you know, cause we're so driven by ego for so long and it's gotten us nowhere. In my first um, sponsor in recovery, he's like, the one thing I need you to remember is your first thought, is wrong. 
<laughs> and as soon as he said that, I'm like, okay, you really just had to turn your thinking on its head because your brain is always going to put up this this defense mechanism that you're so it's a default setting that you had for so long. And then in in therapy, you really had to kind of rewire your brain, so to speak. Absolutely. And you also, um, Tier, you're now learning coping mechanisms for things like anger and violence. Uh, can you share some of those things that you learned? Yeah, absolutely. Um, number one, I had a lot of trauma. And I learned that I knew nothing about emotional intelligence. Nothing. I was taught to deal with my problems in a violent way because that's the only thing individuals from my circle or my world, that's what they respected. I thought that that was the norm, but then I learned alternatives to violence. I learned how to de-escalate situations. Like I learned how to be assertive versus aggressive. I got to the core of what made me act how I acted. And it really made me evaluate like my childhood trauma. And the thing I love the most about this treatment is I could not blame one thing on anybody else. I think that was the one thing that saved my life because they made me delve deep into my addiction, into my gang life, into my family story, into my relationships, and they held me accountable for every single thing I did, and I could not blame one thing on anybody else. I had to turn it back to myself. And I'd never done that before. I never had to be accountable for my wrongdoing. And then I never had to peel back and get to the core of why I did what I did. I never got to experience or even talk about my trauma. I didn't even know what trauma was. I thought it was just normal things that we people just go through. What you just said perfectly sums up the challenges that we face in recovery when we're learning a new way of learning, a new way of thinking, basically. Like for so long, it was so easy to just blame others for all of our problems because it's easy. It's not my fault. It's it's that guy's fault. And what does that foster though? It fosters resentment and resentment breeds more resentment. And when we use drugs and alcohol, we're fueled by that resentment. Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Then Tier met Shane Price, founder of the Power of People Leadership Institute, commonly known as Pop Guys. I met Shane, I believe, a little bit after I got out of treatment. I can't remember if I was in treatment or after, but... um. My mother lived across the street from his mother. And I saw Shane, but I didn't know who he was. This is before I was in prison. And um, it was amazing to see a man who wasn't afraid to, you know, he was very uh, boisterous and flamboyant inside the prison walls and he just he, he spoke mighty he wasn't uh timid it was the first time really that 
another black man gave off a father type of image and, and, and a love, but like not a, a, a punk type of love. Like it was just, a, it was more or less like a genuine type of love. I could tell he had lived experience versus studied experience, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Well, what was the group teaching you? What were, what were some of the values they were instilling? Personal power, um, really just the power that you have inside of you has always been there. You just never tapped into it. And if you did, you just kind of used it in the wrong outlets or avenues, which was true. And then his wife, Dr. Verna Price, she wrote a book called The Power of People, Four Types of People That Can Change Your Life. And they're adders, subtractors, and multipliers. And the adders, they add to your life. Subtractors take away. Dividers, they divide you from your purpose. And multipliers take what an adder has and they take what you have and, you know, kind of multiply it. And so I began to accept that philosophy. And um, it was beautiful because it was kind of a culturally specific type of cognitive behavior, real life class that, that spoke to my childhood trauma, the current trauma that I was dealing with while I was inside, and even the current trauma that was awaiting me when I got out. All through his cognitive treatment and then working with Pop Guys, Thierry held on to one thing that motivated him to stay sober. He wanted to be reunited with his son. Thierry reached out several times while he was in prison. I would call there to ask to talk my son and, you know, she would make my son say disrespectful things to me when I called and I'd be like, hey, son. And he would say things like, daddy, did you shoot somebody? Are you in prison? Do you have any money? She would just tell him to say these horrible things to me. So that scarred me even more. And then she wouldn't bring him up there to see me. I remember I called my mom one day and I actually was almost in tears. And I said, I cannot take not seeing my son. And she said, well, son, you may just have to act like he's not here in order for you to survive in there. That was kind of, that was crazy. It was sickening for me to even think of, but I had to block my son out of my psyche in order to survive mentally inside. Even though I devoted my change and my transformation to him, I had to kind of block him out because it really started to mess with me. It's one thing to not see your son But it's another thing to whenever you call your son, you know, your son is used and being harassed and and, and he's being made to say these disrespectful things, to put the nail on the coffin. Like it was just so hard and hurtful to deal with. And those, I have vivid memories of that. Just my son being told to say disrespectful things to me while I'm in prison. you know, it was just hurtful. It was it was a difficult time. Yeah, you just had to block him out for a little bit. You know, you just had to block him out. T 
Pelletier left prison in 2016 and started a new life. He leaned heavily on the support of Shane Price and the organization Pop Guys to help get him a home and a job. Pretty soon, he was starting to find peace and forgiveness. In a week after I got out, I went to this nonprofit to kind of better myself and get some help with housing. And he walked past the victim of my crime. And, you know, my heart is beating out of my chest. He was looking at the ground. And I just, I started the conversation off. I said, I said, man, you know what? I can't change what happened, but I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, with every bone in my body, I have the utmost remorse for, you know, what I did to you. I'm a different person now. I'm in a different space. And I don't want you to think that I came here for you. I'm here trying to better my life. You know, I just want you to know that, you know, I I have the utmost contrition. Like, I, I really apologize for what happened. And then it was his turn to talk. And he apologized for whatever his role was in that situation. He still wanted to be friends with me. That's incredible. It is. Tierre continues to thrive in his new life. Two years ago, Shane hired Tierre at the Power of People Leadership Institute, and Tierre has made an impact on voting rights for ex-offenders. He was part of an ACLU lawsuit to restore voting rights to ex-offenders in the state of Minnesota. But Tierre had to learn another hard lesson. Being a father doesn't automatically give you the right to be with your son. It was something he had to earn. It was very difficult, though. Very difficult just transitioning back into society. That was one thing. But then dealing with the um, entitlement that I felt like I was old because this was my son. And so I was just like, well, why should I have to, like, wait? Like, what's the big deal? Like, this is my son. Like, I should be able to see him. What did you say to your son at that time? Um, I said, do you have any questions for me? Because he was looking like, he was like, yeah, but no. And then I was like, I said, Go ahead and ask me, son. I said, you can ask me anything. And he was like, are you a bad person? And I was like, I said, no. I said, I'm a good person that made a bad decision once in my life. And I said, do you think I'm a bad person? And he was like, no, I don't think you're a bad person. I was like, man, do you know how much I missed you? And he was like, no, I don't know. And I said, do you know that I've been asking the to talk to you and be with you. And and he was like, no, I didn't know that. Today, Tierre is still struggling to have his son in his life. He's learning from his mistakes and is still growing as a person. He knows how lucky he is to have someone like Shane Price in his life to help him be the father he wants to be. It's just a blessing to have people in your life in this chapter. All that time I wasted being high, thinking that I was living life. You know, now I can actually appreciate organic happiness, divine freedom, and just un 
unfiltered love. Next time on Back From Broken, we've got something special. You'll get to meet Tierra's mentor, the guy that helped him turn his life around, Shane Price. Hear Shane's story about rising up from a life of hustling women to hearing the birds sing for the first time. Next week on Back From Broken. Back From Broken is a show about how we're all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. If you or someone you know are struggling with addiction, you can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. Back From Broken is hosted by me, Vic Vela. Our lead producer today was Joe Erickson. Matthew Simonson was also a producer. Find a list of everyone who helped make this episode in the show notes. This podcast is made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Back From Broken at CPR.org.